Welcome to Season 5 of the Excel Still More Podcast. I'm still your host, Chris Emerson, and I'm here to encourage you in your walk with the Lord, and I'm glad you've joined. The program continues to be sponsored by Cunningham Financial Group. John is a good friend, and he's helped me and my family in everything from stock and mutual fund investing to annuities, life insurance, and retirement planning. I certainly commend him to you if you have needs in any of those areas. You can reach him at 205 205- 3267364. Thank you again for your ongoing encouragement and support. Let's get started. Hey, welcome back. I hope that your week has started well. Today is very much a continuation of last week's episode. As I kind of teased at the end, we will be revisiting the story of Nehemiah and the rebuilt walls today. However, I will be challenging you to see not only that story, but a lot of other things in the Bible from more of a collective angle instead of an individual one. This shift in focus will cause us to ask very different questions, maybe even on passages you've seen your whole life. I certainly hope you find this useful and that it challenges you in a way that will pay off not only for you, but for anyone and everyone that is in your circle of influence. Now, I want to say as we get started, I'm all about individual application. You've heard me do it for years. I devoted all of last week's episode to telling you the story of Nehemiah and asking you on a personal level, are you a 90-year waiter or are you a 52-day accomplisher? And just to follow up with that for a minute, how's that going for you? Is today the eighth day of some rebuild that you're doing? something that you've overlooked for a really long time or started and stopped over and over again, that you are committed to a 52-day change? I hope you've chosen something, maybe more than one thing, and you are already beginning to see yourself become unshackled from addiction or lethargic behavior, and maybe you're even seeing some results. So just to be clear, I'm super big on that, excelling still more from an individual basis, As I mentioned to you last week, those things have been working for me dietarily, also in exercise. I have not put social media back on my phone a week later. And for me, an initial journaling and daily Bible reading challenge that was intended to go 52 days is approaching day 1,600. But here's the big however on that discussion. We can get too focused on just ourselves. We live in a very individualistic culture, and I don't necessarily mean that in a sinful way. It's just kind of the way it is. There is tons of independence. We have enough freedom and prosperity and opportunity to kind of function on our own. And so this communal sense, this societal need to survive is not as dominant in our culture as it is in other places on the planet today and as it was for many people through much of world history. I mean, for hundreds, maybe in the thousands of years, when you visited villages, everybody in that village lived because that village survived. If anyone tried to break away from their family or their tribe, they would starve to death. People selflessly and continually devoted themselves to the well-being of the group because it was essential for their own good and the good of others. I think really when we dig into not only first century New Testament time, but times in the Old Testament as well, that is a pretty common theme of the way life was. You think about the very early days of the church as they were establishing these congregations and people were selling their land and 
pooling together their funds to help anyone and everyone in their new Christian family who is in need. Today we go, well, there's some of that, but we have governmental programs, welfare, all kinds of opportunities to make money. And what we're really saying is our culture is different in many ways, and each person can kind of do it on their own. And to me, sadly, as I observe all of that, I just tend to think that overall people flee the group when the responsibility is too great and it's almost too easy to just run away. Someone can just leave their family if they don't like the rules. Someone can just not come to church for a year and it has no effect on their confidence and their walk and and the strength that they need. Now, I'm not saying those things are true. I'm saying they're at least perceived enough that individualism has in some ways replaced the collective sense of us over me. Now, again, I'll say it once more, I'm all good with you working on you, but I think even in first century times, that individual focus was about getting healthy so that you could be a healthy contributor to the body of Christ or your family. So we do want to avoid two mistakes when we're working on ourselves. Mistake number one is making it all about my life, my growth, my goals, maybe just me and my family, which is really just an extension of me and miss how God really wants to use me. And I think an extension of that would be actually becoming a discouragement or a deconstructor of some collective effort because I'm putting all of the focus on myself. So for the rest of the episode, I want to encourage you to lean into the people around you and how God is trying to use you And I want to walk you through several Bible stories to help that become a common way of thinking. I actually think a lot of the New Testament will be interpreted differently by you, and you will begin to ask very different questions when you think from an us category before me. So probably the most prime example is last week's story of Nehemiah leaving his homeland, traveling 900 miles, gathering up the elders of the city, rallying that city, to begin rebuilding the walls, facing outward opposition, sticking together, facing some inward criticism, settling disputes, and in 52 days, the city's wall, representing the nation's security, was rebuilt when they had walked over that rubble for, like we said, 90 years. Looking at it from Nehemiah's perspective, that is not a me story. That is an us story. Nehemiah didn't go out and fix his own life in 52 days. Nehemiah left his own life, and not just for two months. He ended up staying a 1,000 miles from home for 12 years, serving as governor of that region. He believed so strongly in honoring God, in the integrity of the nation, and in the need to rebuild and be strong again that he sacrificed himself. He sacrificed his home and his time, and he led the people. The problems he faced during those 52 days weren't personal and individualistic. They were people attacking his people. They were people within his own tribe struggling with one another. He didn't run off and say, hey, I think I'll just go build my own wall. He said, we're still doing this. We will pray through this. I will encourage you. We will get you working next to people who are also willing to work. When you hold the hammer, we'll have a brother behind you holding the sword. And he will use it against the enemy, and he will not turn it on you. How does that story hit you differently when you look at it in terms of a community? 
I would ask you different questions. I wouldn't say, hey, what is something you've gone most of your life without doing that you could change in 52 days? I would say, can we talk about your family? Or I think more particular to the narrative of Scripture, can we talk about the body of believers with which you work? What are some things you and that group need to do better? Do you need to be more spiritually minded? Do you guys need to cut through leaning too much on looking like the world? Does the local church need to get back to the teachings of Jesus or being more evangelistic? How can that group change everything in 52 days when you know very well that if it doesn't get addressed, it can blow far past 90 years and never get done? So then just to lean in on the church idea a bit, whether you are a man or a woman, an elder or a new member, my question is, how can you help? What role can you play to get with like-minded people, to just simply sow passion. Nehemiah walked through the city, and mainly he just got them all together and says, guys, we can do better than this. Don't you want more than this? And they did. So let me just say at the nine-minute mark, this is way, way harder. It's really easy to sit by myself and think, what do I need to be doing better for God? Or what do I need to change about my life? Why don't I get up and do that? 52-day challenge. But so often, the characters all throughout Bible history weren't known for personal change. They were known for leading with their faith and changing the future and the lives of others. So I actually would like to share another New Testament story with you to drive this home a little more, and I hope you'll enjoy the retelling of the adventures of Paul in Acts 27. But first, let me say that if you are a New Testament Bible reader, wherever you're reading— Gospels, epistles, revelation, doesn't matter where. Try asking different questions. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for my whole family or Christ's whole body? What am I being challenged to do with reference to that body? I did a sermon on this last week. In fact, I did two of them. They're called Us Over Me, parts one and two. And we just kind of read through some things in Ephesians, and I told both of the stories that you're hearing here. But so much of the language for the Christian is, hey, you're a part of the body. Find your part. The operating of each individual part makes the body work. Find your gift, your ability, not to go and do great things for God on your own, although we do try to do that, but to help the entirety of that body slowly but surely function in a way that honors the Lord. So I'm challenging you to just look into Scripture in that way. Let me give you an interesting example from the teachings of Jesus. Could you recite the Lord's Prayer right now on the spot? I think maybe a lot of us could, but just to be sure I get it right, I'm reading it from Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. See if this sounds familiar. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So I think most of us know that. You may have been reciting it right along with me. But I have to say, for most of my life, the only people I've ever thought about when reading or praying that prayer was myself and God. In my mind, it goes like this. You are my Father who is in heaven, and you are worthy. 
your kingdom will come and your will be done, and I pray that it is done so in me and in my life as it is in heaven. Please provide me and my family daily bread. Forgive me my debts as I forgive the people who sin against me, and lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. But here's the interesting twist. I took all of the plural pronouns that Jesus actually included, and I made them personal, which is kind of what I'm telling you. There's just this tendency to look at it in that myopic sort of way. So instead of me asking you, how would you apply this part of it or that part of it, here's a different way of me asking it. What does it mean to think our Father who art in heaven? Who is the our that I'm including in these prayers? Who is linked with me? Do you see that he wants his will done on earth, not just in you, but in all places where you are? It's not give me lunch today. It's give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive others and do not lead us into temptation. What happens when you start asking yourself, who is us? Who are these people I am linking myself to? And better question, what would it mean for me to pray for us not to be led into temptation? Ooh, and what part might I play in helping us? What does it mean to not pray for lunch for the Emerson family, but for all of the brothers and sisters in Christ to have their daily bread, for that to be my focus? I wonder if I'll play a role in that. Do you see what happens? By using the language Jesus gave us, it gets bigger than me. It becomes about us. And I'm not just waiting on God to do things. I'm actually a part of his workmanship to do the greater thing, which is help other people's lives to change. Now, there's a 52-day challenge. Who do you know? What family do you know? What believers do you know who are falling to temptation right now or have a hardness of their hearts or don't have their daily bread? I wonder what you and I could do to completely change that family's life in 52 days or less if we prayed for them as well as us and then we look for opportunities to help. Okay, I don't have a ton of time, but I want to go through this again with a New Testament story. I recently read Acts 27, Paul's shipwreck story. He and Luke and Aristarchus are under kind of a loose guard, and they're on a ship headed to Rome. After a little while, they come to a place called Fairhaven, where God tells Paul to tell them, this is where you need to stay, this is where I want you to be. But the officer and the captain, they decide to go on a little further. It wasn't good enough for them. They wanted a little bit more. They wanted to get to the other side of the island. But of course, that was not God's plan, and there were consequences, and a northeasterly wind blew them out to sea. Paul told them, if you don't listen, things will get bad, and they went through 14 days of terror. They pretty much all thought, and there were 276 of them, that they were all going to die. Paul then comes in and says, I've gotten word from the Lord. Firstly and foremost, I told you so. You should not have done this, when you disobey God, things always go further and get darker than you wanted them to go. But God will work with you. God will save all of us, but you need to listen very carefully. And he told them a few different things. He said, first of all, you're going to have to take courage. In other words, you need to have faith that even though you've created this mess, God can help you through it. Secondly, when you get tempted to jump ship, don't. There was a point a little bit later where a few of them thought that the water was getting more shallow and they wanted to jump in. And Paul said, if you do that, you die. 
You've got to show your conviction and stick with this plan. It's going to get worse before it gets better. That's your fault, but God will not desert you. And then later in the journey, he said, look, everybody needs to sit down and just eat lunch. We can't be stressed out all of the time. We need to trust God and relax a little bit. So even though they were going through trouble of their own device, God said three things, have faith and take courage, don't abandon ship, and just try to relax a little bit, and this will work out. They did, in fact, run aground, shipwrecked, and at that point, everyone got out and went to shore, and all 276 of them were safely delivered to the land. And it actually turns into a cool story in the last chapter of the book of Acts, where God uses all of that, none of which had he originally intended, but he used it to deliver the gospel and his power to the island of Malta, and there's probably people in heaven as a result of that. So let me just ask you, and of course, you have a little bit of insight to where I'm going, but what is the typical application of that story? If you've ever heard it preached before, and I've preached it a half a dozen times over the years, usually the application is very individualistic. This is a cautionary tale for people on their journey through life. And honestly, kind of like Nehemiah, if you look at it that way, it plays out pretty awesome. You tell someone, you say, look, you're sailing on this journey of life. You come to a place where God says, this is where I want you to be. This is right. This is enough. But maybe you listen to other influences and you decide, this isn't enough for me. I want more. I'm just going to push it a little bit further. But God says, you'll face penalties if you do. And so you get blown off course. Sin takes you farther than you wanted to go, makes things darker than you ever wanted them to be, and you find yourself adrift. It is then that God can step in through providence, through people, and certainly through passages and say, look, I told you so. That's the way sin works. But I can still get you home from here. There are a few things you're going to have to do, though. You're going to have to put your faith in me. You're going to have to be courageous about my strength. Let's try it my way. Number two, things will get a little worse before they get better. We've got to weather this storm that you've sailed directly into but you cannot jump ship. You've got to prove that you will stick with me through this even when it gets hard. And at some point, you can't just be riddled with anxiety. You're going to have to sit down and have a sandwich. Ultimately, we encourage people to just stick with God. Maybe they face that shipwreck. Sin has consequences, but they come out alive on the other side. And usually God is even able to use people to carry out good on the back end of the journey. Now, I think, personally, that's a great application of that story, but at best, it's secondary. Like in the case of Nehemiah, this is not Paul's story. This is a story about 276 people. This is about a group of people on a journey who are at a safe and good place, but a couple of the people, some leadership, decided it wasn't good enough and took them off into a troubled situation. God comes in and says, you made things worse than it needed to be, but as a group of people, you need to take courage. We can fix this. And if any one of you leaves, it puts everyone else in danger. Don't jump ship. You're in this together. Stay together. There's an interesting verse there that says that if some of you jump ship, all of us will die. Then let's sit down together. Let's dine together. Let's help each other through this. There was a point where some of the soldiers wanted to kill the prisoners. Sometimes they turn on each other in times of fear, but they were talked out of that. And the real glory of the story is not that Paul made it through. He was a righteous man. These weren't even his mistakes. It's that they all made it through. Everyone got saved through this. 
Now look, my time is up today, but I want you to think about how that would apply to some collective of people you love in your life. Personally, I've been thinking a lot about local churches. There are churches that God wants to use, fill with the Spirit and the words of Jesus and His mission, but they have sailed in a different direction. Some of them have sailed way, way left. Others have sailed so far right that they don't even remember where they're really supposed to be. It makes me think of things like love and patience and evangelism. Do you know what that means for that church? Maybe even the church where you worship. It means things are harder than they should have been. Things are darker and scarier than they ought to be. So what do we do? Do we go every man for himself? I'll just worship at home or I'll just leave this church or I'm done with this. Or do we have at least some sense that us as a collective, as a body of Christ working together, that that is more important than just my knee-jerk reactions that are probably more focused on myself or my family? What if we rallied up Nehemiah style and we got the message of Paul that said, hey, God can work with this, but it's going to be hard. Are you guys ready for hard? We're going to have to be courageous. No one can jump ship. And we're going to have to grow close together, and live in peace as God leads us through. Since we're talking about churches, I'll just tell you there are many that are not healthy, and the next generation is not going to go well for them. If they've been 90 years off track, they're going to run out of time. Can we turn everything around in 52 days? Maybe. We can at least get that reset where we're feeling hopeful again. And when things are really hard, like a shipwreck, we'll go, you know what, that's a consequence of the road we've taken, but God is with us. And wouldn't it be awesome if churches found their way to safety and everyone who was a part of it was saved and God even used all of this to position that group to save others? Look, if you want to hear more about that, check out the sermons from last week. We do a lot of Bible study throughout the day. But just to give you a quick thought, mixing the stories together, God absolutely has wonderful plans for you where you can reset things and change the trajectory for the rest of your life, and you can do it in very quick order. But I need you to see that your best work will not be for you or just the people who live under your roof. Your best work will be a sacrificial Nehemiah spirit or the courageous, encouraging words of Paul that inspire affect, and maybe even lead your people, God's people, to a better place in future. If that sounds hard, it's because it is. If you don't know where to start, just start with your pronouns. What would my goals look like if it was us over me? Thank you so much for listening in today. If you enjoyed this program, will you share it with someone you care about? One thing I've learned over these five seasons is that there's nothing as powerful in advertising as word of mouth sharing between friends. Speaking of friends, let me once again commend you to give John Cunningham a call. He and his team have a wide variety of tools to help you use your present budget and life to build towards a more secure and hopeful financial future. Once again, you can reach him at 205-326-7364. And always remember, whatever you choose to do today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, excel still more.